Greetings and welcome back to Book of the Year. My name is Yitzchak Et Shalom. I'm delighted to continue studying with you Sefer Bereshit, the life of Abraham. We are still in the middle of our study of the Akedal, though we will be winding it up in the next few weeks. This is the sixth shiur uh, about the text of the Akedah, and I'd like to focus on one pasuk, and really half of a pasuk, as you can see highlighted here in uh, in Pasuk Yudalid on the first page of the handout. Um, background. Uh, Avraham, and we've seen this numerous times already, has been called by God to uh, to take his son, his only son, with all of the ter- terms of endearment, endearment there, and take him to the land of Moriah, uh, which we spoke about its location uh, and uh, Samaritan view on that. Vahaleu Sham Le'olah, we spoke about what, how that might be interpreted, four different interpretations that we found uh, among the traditional commentators. Uh, and to, on, on to one of the mountains that I will tell you, the association of that with the beginning of his journey at Lech Lecha. And I've only got up early, and he saddled his donkey, and he took his two Na'arim, and last week we talked about who those Na'arim are, meaning Yitzchak's inclusion as one of the Na'arim, or Yitzchak is uniquely Beno, and the two different ways that he's related to in the text. And Avram split the wood, and they went to the place that God showed him. And then on the third day, and we before Purim, we had, we spoke about Bayom Hashlishi and its significance, and the Midrashic development of that. Avram looked up and he saw the place, and then he told the Na'arim, you stay here with the donkey, I and the Na'ar will go to that place, and we will worship. We spoke about this last week. And Avraham took the wood, and, uh, and, and he took the fire and the knife, now, what's missing here is highlighted in Pasuk Zion, and this is where we need to start. So Yitzchak says to his father, Avi. And Avram answers Yitzchak the same way he answered God, Here I am. Here I am with the sense of I'm here to do whatever you request. So Yitzchak says, Here we have the fire, here we have the wood. He doesn't mention the machelet, the knife. It could be that Avraham doesn't have the knife exposed. It could be that uh, the knife is assumed. Uh, where is the lamb for the Ola? Ve'omar Avraham, and Avraham's answer is, Elohim yir b'ni. We already saw this in one of the introductory shurim, how the word ro'eh, to see, is one of the key words in this parasha. Here Avraham says to his son, God will see us, really meaning see, evidently show us, the seb le'olah b'ni. And of course, if we parse this midrashically, we can say, Elohim yirelo haseh, but le'olah b'ni. God will show us a seb, but you're the olah. Okay. And they walk together on their mission up to the mountain with all the materials except for the animal for the korban, which God is going to show them there. And now, So they get to the place, Avraham builds the Mizbeach, which seems to mean that he put a few stones together to build a Mizbeach. He sets up the wood, lays it out. And this must have been the moment of surprise for Yitzchak. He ties Yitzchak up. Binds him. Puts him on top of the Mizbeach, on top of the wood. So you have stones, Wood, Yitzchak. 
Now Avram reaches his hand in and takes the ma'achelot. The ma'achelot is like a carving knife. It's a word that shows up only two times in Tanakh here and in the story of Pilegesh Begivah, uh, which is in Shoftim Yotet, maybe the most horrific story in Tanakh, where the man cuts up with a ma'achelot, his own concubine, into 12 pieces, leading to the famous civil war against Binyamin. Um, and he takes it out, which may indicate that it was somewhere hidden and uh, that Yitzchak didn't know, which is why Yitzchak didn't ask about it in a few psukim earlier. Um, and he takes it out in order, in order to slaughter his son. Now Hashem intervenes through a malach who speaks to him, and again, Avraham's got his stock answer of Hineni. Do not send your hand against the boy. Now notice, we had him sending his hand to get the knife. Now don't send your hand against the boy. In one of the concluding shurim, we'll talk about what the addition of this line means. We'll talk about some of the later Midrashim about the Akedah. Now I know. This, of course, is a theological quagmire of this whole story, which is, now I know that you fear that you fear God, and you did not withhold your only son from me. Vaisa Avraham, and it's something we need to address, but not in the shiur. Vaisa Avraham et Einav, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a ram, achar, it's late, it's further on, nechaz basvach bekarnav, it's caught with its horns in a thicket. So Avraham understands this ram was held there in order to be the offering. And Avraham goes and takes the isle and he offers it up as an olah in place of his son. Now, last week we talked about where Yitzchak was at the time and the presumption is that Yitzchak had left and had joined the other Na'arim from a distance. Avraham then gives the place a name. And the name he gives it is Adonai Yireh, God sees. Asher Yamer Hayom Bahar Adonai And that's the catchphrase that we're going to have to deal with. As is said today, he goes to be seen on the mountain of God. Okay, we're going to come back to that, but first, a couple words about naming the place. First of all, we find through Tanakh several occasions where people build noteworthy Mizbachot and they name the Mizbeach. Famously, when Moshe builds the Mizbeach after the uh, successful war against Amalek, he calls the Mizbeach Adonai Nisi. When Gidon builds the Mizbeach after Hashem appears to him and he doesn't die, he calls it Adonai Shalom. And um, and when the two and a half tribes in Sefer Yoshua, Perak Bet, when they return to the East Bank and they build the Mizbeach, they refer to it evidently as Aid. Right? They refer to the Mizbeach as a witness, as a testimony. So naming a Mizbeach based on the, the event that caused this Mizbeach to be built is not unusual. The second thing is that the notion of God seeing somebody occasioned with a holy place is something that we have earlier, and we actually studied it in our, in our shiur. If you take a look back in Breshit, uh, Ted Zion in the story of Hagar, who encounters the Malach. Uh, after she encounters the Malach, and the Malach sends her back with the promise of Ishmael and of a great nation, 
She then says, Vatikra Shem Adonai Hadover Eleha in Pasuk Yod Gimel, Ata El Roi, you are the God who sees me. Ki Amra Hagam Halom Raiti Achare Roi, God has seen me after I saw, or something of that effect. It's a very difficult Pasuk, but the notion of God seeing as associated with a holy place and with a, uh, a place of an encounter with God is something that we find, as I said, we find elsewhere in Tanakh. So this is not unusual. The unusual and difficult part is the second half of the Pasuk. Avram names the place Adonai which fits because God has seen me, God sees that I was ready to do the Korban, God showed me the ram, uh, all be, and the name of the place is Moriah, so it, uh, there's an alliteration there, it's beautiful. But what's the second half of the Pasuk? As is said today, on God's mountain will be seen. Who's saying those words? Is Avram saying those words? Then what does he mean by that? Is, the, is Moshe saying those words when he's writing the Torah? Then what does he mean by that? So let's take a look, turn to the second page, and let's see what some of the classic commentaries have to say about it. Rashi, Adonai Yir'et. So Rashi in source three, Pshuto ketargumo, meaning, Hashem yivchar Meaning, Hashem will select this place, which means that Avraham is prophetically stating that this place where I'm at now is a place that God will ultimately choose to make his Shekhinah rest there. And then, Asher ye Amer Hayom, what does that mean? That people in the generations will say, on this mountain, God will appear to his people. Now, what is Hayom? Hayom. So Rashi says, Hayamim Ha'atidin, meaning in future days. And he gives an example of Ad Hayom Hazeh throughout Tanakh. In other words, Hayom is a reference to the day of the reader. As a person today says, today we say, but then again, we have the essential problem, which is, if we're going to identify this place as Harabayit, as identified in Devarayamim, and that's fine, then is Avraham having prophecy here that this will be a place that will be the ultimate Beit HaMikdash, and that there will be some mitzvah of coming to be seen by God, which turns out to be the mitzvah of Re'iyah on the three pilgrimage festivals. Could be, why not? Let's keep going. The Rashbam has a different take. No surprise. Asher Ye'amer Hayom, he says, means today. Ulamachar Bahar Adonai Ye'ra'et. So he parses the pasuk as follows. Um, meaning that's uh, that's what we say today and in the future right which means so now doesn't mean he will be seen but rather in the future they're going to turn back and say at this place God appeared to Avram which means now this has nothing to do with prophecy this has nothing to do with the location being the location of the Beit HaMikdash, just means that in the future, people will say, this is a place where God appeared to Avraham. Okay? The Radak uh, goes in the standard direction, which is more like Rashi, to say this has to do with the uh, the the future place. Shem Yerah'eh, the Radak says, Al Shem She'amar Elohim Yer Elo 
Why did Avram call the place Hashem Yireh? Because he had said to Yitzchak, God will show us the Seh, and God indeed showed us the Ram. And so therefore, that's what he calls it. Asher Yamer Hayom. So it's not about God appearing to Avram, but rather God showing Avram the solution to, to the Korban. Asher Yamer Hayom. Meaning, this day will be talked about on this mountain when Hashem appears and makes this the place of the Beit HaMikdash. Which means this is now Avraham talking. And Avraham is saying, when this place becomes the holy mountain and the place of the Beit HaMikdash, people will still tell the story about me bringing Yitzchak up here for the Akedah. Now he says explicitly what Rashi did not say, but evidently assumed, that this was said to Avram bin Nivua prophetically. Which means now, why did Hashem send Avraham to Harham Moriah? Because in the future, that will be the place where his children will bring korbanot. In other words, as opposed to saying that Avraham was sent to Harmoriah because Harmoriah has some other significance. Either because, as the Midrash says, it's the place where man was created from or for some other reason, or because of the association with Malkit Tzedek and Melech Shalem, but rather because that will be the place that God will later choose, so you're foreshadowing by going there now. Okay. Before we get to the Ibn Ezra, who's really going to be the focal point of the rest of the Shi'ur, I just want to comment about this. In the uh, both Rashi and the Radak's approach, which is the conventional approach that says that, that Avram's line is about the future location of the Beit HaMikdash being here and about people coming to be seen at the Beit HaMikdash, as Rashi says. Part of the difficulty of this, and it's not an insurmountable difficulty by any means, is Shiloh. When we first enter the land, the Mishkan is at the base camp in Gilgal, and it's there, according to Chazal, for 14 years. In any case, in Sefer Yoshua Perak Yod Chet, after the war is done, and when they're coming to do the final division of the land, after some of the land has been divided and, and apportioned, uh, they bring the Mishkan and set it up in Shiloh. And it remains in Shiloh until the period of Shmuel, which means during the entire period of the Shoftim, it's in Shiloh. And Shiloh is the place where people make their pilgrimage, as you read about in the very beginning of Sefer Shmuel with Elkanah and his family. And as we read in Tehillim Ayin Chet, the, there was a divine rejection of that place, and we see shades of it also in Yirmiyahu Perak Zion, uh, in favor of Yehuda a rejection of Shevet Ephraim in favor of Shevet, uh, Shevet Yehuda, a rejection of the family of Eli, ultimately uh, plays differently, but ultimately the selection of David uh, and of Yehuda and of Yushalayim. Fine. Which, that, which means that Yushalayim, of course, is the eternal place of the Mikdash, and Kudushash the sanctity of the Mikdash, certainly the second Mikdash, if not the first, is a permanent sanctity and it holds today. Agreed. But then what are we to do with Shiloh? Are we to look at Shiloh and say Shiloh was always intended to be a temporary location because Avraham had a nevuah that this spot was going to be the spot of the Mikdash? Or do we say that Avraham had this nevuah, but it was a little unclear as to what it would mean, and only after Yerushalayim was selected by David and by Hashem, that selection was approved, 
then this nevoah crystallized into what it means. A couple of possibilities, and I keep it open, but I think it's something that we have to think about uh, when we read this. But now I want to get to the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra in the line, Bahar Hashem Yerah, makes the following uh, two-word comment, which is not his own words. He says, V'tam, Bahar Hashem Yerah, And the, the Ibn Ezra could not be more inscrutable here. You, you, you really have to know what the other references to have any idea what he's talking about. And clearly he is being cryptic. He's not clearly being cryptic as something of an oxymoron, but he's clearly not trying to expose his entire position, but rather to say, take a look at Elad Dvarim and you'll figure out what it means. Elad Dvarim is the name of a book. And you see its first pasuk, Elad Dvarim. We call it Sefer Dvarim, but some of the Rishonim referred to it as Elad Dvarim. These are the words that Moshe said to Am Yisrael, Okay, and that's the opening of Sefer Dvarim. However, there's a little bit of a difficulty in the opening line. Besides the fact that the entire book almost is written with Moshe Rabbeinu in the third person, the few times that it's not is when we have a report that Moshe said the following. So we have a speech of Moshe. But otherwise, Moshe is in the third person, and Moshe then speaks to B'nai Israel, and we hear about his speeches to B'nai Israel. So therefore, who wrote it? All right, so Moshe wrote it in the third person. doesn't bother me. But here's the piece that the Ibn Ezra picks up on. If you take a look at Source 8, this is in the Ibn Ezra's commentary in the second Pasuk. Be'ever Hayardain, which you see in Pasuk Aleph, Bamidbar, Ba'arava, all of these are in Pasuk Aleph. And then he says, V'im tavin sod masar. If you understand the secret of the twelve, Gam v'ayichtov Moshe, and v'akrani azbaretz, and v'har Hashem yerad. We'll look at that one. V'nasor azbarzel takir amet. If you understand the secret of the twelve and the secret of these other Pasukim, then you'll understand what's really going on. And that's all he says. So he continues to be cryptic. And he mentions Sod Hashnei Masar, the secret of the twelve. And then he also mentions our Pasuk along with it. And that's the only other piece that we'll look at besides the twelve. What's the twelve? So we have to turn ahead to the last chapter of Sefer Dvarim, which is all made up of twelve Pasukim, as you can see in the highlighted yellow piece in the last source. And the Ibn Ezra's commentary at the beginning of the, tw- of the last parak says, Vayal Moshe, he says, Lefi dati, and is the only place where he says it explicitly. According to my opinion, Ki pasuk katav Yoshua. At this point, Yoshua was the writer. The last entire chapter was written by Yoshua. Why? Moshe lo katav. After Moshe went up to the mountain, he didn't write anymore, meaning, and Yoshua, by the way, wrote it prophetically. How do I know that Moshe didn't write anything more? Because he never came down. Meaning, maybe he wrote something, but we didn't get it. So when Moshe wrote a Sefer Torah, that had to be before he went up to the top of the mountain, because he never came down. We never saw him again. And therefore, and there's no record of us going up to the top of the mountain, looking around and finding a last patch of a Sefer Torah that he wrote and adding it in. And so therefore, he says, Yoshua must have written this after Moshe's death. And he says, V'ha'ed, and the testimony is Vayarehu Hashem. If you take a look in Pasuk um, Aleph, Vayarehu Hashem, Hashem showed him the land. Gam Hashem Elav, and it says Hashem said to him, and Vayikbor Hashem buried him. 
So these are all things that, that would make sense to be written after Moshe died and written by Yeshua. We're going to get to the back to the basis for where the Ibn Ezra is saying this from, but the Ibn Ezra is making the claim that the entire last chapter of Dvarim was not written not by Moshe, but Yeshua, but critical to note, written prophetically, which means one way or the other, this is God's word, whether through Moshe or through Yeshua. And that's a critical uh, um, point to make here. Now, what does he mean now when he goes to the beginning of Sefer Dvarim? He mentions that Sefer Dvarim, if you understand this, the secret of the Twelve, the secret of the Twelve, most commentators of Ibn Ezra understand that the secret of the Twelve, and there's a different girsa here of Sod HaSarim, but Sod HaShemasar, most people understand it's referring to these Twelve. There is another approach uh, that has to do with the passage in the end of Bamidbar, but most understand it's about these Twelve, because these Twelve, the Ibn Ezra explicitly said, were written by Yoshua. So why is he, what's bothering him at the beginning of Dvarim that causes him to say that? So he doesn't tell us, but I think what it is is as follows. If you look at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, which is uh, source 7, you will see that it reads, Eilah Dvarim, these are the words, Asher diber Moshe el kol Yisrael ha'yarden, that Hashem, that Moshe spoke to Ben Yisrael on the other side of the Yarden, other side of the Yarden. Now, which side of the Yarden was Moshe on? The answer is east. He never was on the west side of the Ardain. He never crossed, so he was on the east side. What's the other side of the Ardain? It means you're on the other side from wherever it happened. Kind of like we have in our city when we refer to the other side of town, which is just the place you're not in. So if you're in the Pico-Robertson area, the other side of town is Hancock Park. If you're in Hancock Park, you find out that the other side of town is Pico-Robertson or Beverlywood. And so Avrahayardain is a relative term. Wherever you are, Avrahayardain is the other side. So if Moshe um, gave this speech on the East Bank, which he did, and that is called by the text Avrahayardain, that means that text was composed from the perspective of the West Bank. And therefore, Moshe, uh, Ibn Ezra is going to claim that this was written, that opening pasuk was written by Yehoshua or somebody else on the West Bank referring to the Avrahayardain, the other side as where it was written. That's not the only way to solve the problem, but that's the way the Ibn Ezra seems to solve the problem. Of course, here cryptically by just saying, if you understand the secret of the Twelve and these other psukim, then you'll understand uh, what this means, Bamidbar, Ba'arava, but critically by Avrahayardain. Uh, parenthetically, the, the Ibn Ezra is not the only one to say this. If you take a look at the very first pasuk in Bamibar Chafbet and look at the Rashbam, you'll see the Rashbam seems to say the same thing, that that when it says, B'nai Yisrael camp be'ever ha'yardein, be'ever ha'yardein y'recho, it's written from the perspective of the West Bank, as if it's somebody on the West Bank writing it, which would mean after Moshe. The Ramban seems to say a similar thing in, in another place in Bamidbar, so does Rashi. It seems that many Rishonim here and there seem to take this approach. But let's see where this approach comes from, and then we're going to double it back to our Pasuk. If we turn back to the first page, you will see Source 2, which is a, uh, a critical passage in Masachet Bavabatra. I say critical, everything in the Gemara is critical. It's critical for the study of Tanakh. And it's a passage we've looked at several times over the years uh, in our Book of the Year study uh, when we met in Shul in person. Uh, the context here is the Mishnah in Masachet Baba Batra uh, in the first chapter talks about dividing co-owned properties. 
and uh, how big a property must be before one owner can force the other owner to separate and to divide, and uh, in what cases uh, can it be done unilaterally. And then the very last line of the Mishnah, of the first chapter says, when it comes to Kitvei HaKodesh, meaning a, uh, uh, a sanctified book, a scroll, if partners own it, even if they both agree to divide it, they may not do so. And that opens the door for the Gemara to share two significant breitot relating to Tanakh. And they are commonly known as the breitot of canonization, although that's a little bit of a misnomer, but, but uh, really they are the breitot of authorship. The first breitot gives the uh, authorized order of the books of Nevi'im and Ketuvim. What's the proper order they should be in? Halachically, the Rambam rules away, our Tanachim don't necessarily follow that order. And then it goes into the authorship. Umik Tavan, who wrote these books? And it starts out by saying the following. Here we see in source two. Moshe katav sifro uparshat bil'am ve'iyov. So according to this Brita, Moshe wrote his own book, which we assume is Torah, parshat bil'am, which is strange because that's in the Torah, and there's much ink has been spilled on solving that problem, and Eov, because according to the opinion of this Brita, Moshe was the author of the book of Eov, that's Machloket and the Gemara. At this point, uh, a little bit after this, the end of this sugya, spends the next two pages discussing Sefer Eov. The main Agadot in Gemara about Eov are here at the end of the first chapter of Babatra. But then Yehoshua katav Sifro, so Yehoshua wrote Sefer Yehoshua, Ushmonep Sukim Shabbat Torah. And the eight psukim of the Torah. Which eight psukim are those? So take a look back on the second page at the bottom, and you will see that I highlighted the entire chapter in yellow highlight, but the last eight psukim I put in red. What does it say in Pasuk He, which is the first of those last eight? Moshe died there. And afterwards, there's Moshe's burial, and then there is. Moshe, the morning for Moshe, and then there's the investiture of Yoshua, and then there is a eulogy for Moshe which, which, with which the Torah ends. And so the position of this Brita is that Yoshua wrote those last eight psukim. Now, so the Gemara now goes to revisit this opinion. Tanya command Almar. So this seems to support the position. Yoshua wrote the last eight to Tanya. We have a brighter that says, It says Moshe died. How can Moshe be alive and write and Moshe died? He could certainly write and Moshe will die, but he can't write Moshe died in the past tense. And the way Rabbi Soloveitchik explains it is because Torah is Torah temet. And that means you can't write something down. It's not true. You can't say Moshe died if Moshe is alive. The answer is that Moshe wrote everything up until that point including, by the way, Moshe going to the top of the mountain and Hashem showing him the land and Hashem saying, you're not going to go into this land. <clears throat> Yeshua wrote the next eight psukim, the last eight. So there's a dispute as to who is the author of that opinion. Whoever said the opinion, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai responded. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai does not respond on doctrinal grounds of saying, you cannot say that any word in the Torah was written by someone other than Moshe. But he says it based on scriptural grounds. Efshar Sefer Torah Chaser Otachat. A Sefer Torah has to be a complete Sefer Torah. Okay. Uchtiv Sefer Torah 
In chapter 31, Moshe writes a Sefer Torah and gives it to the Levim and says, take this and put it next to or in the Aron. So how can he refer to a Sefer Torah if it's not a full Sefer Torah? So Rabbi Shimon now has to explain how could Moshe write and Moshe died. Everything up until this point, God was dictating and Moshe was repeating and writing. Repeating and writing. From this point on, meaning these last eight psukim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was writing it, and Moshe was writing it, was, Moshe was dictating it, and Moshe was writing it with tears. Now, of course, the tears, the simplest reading is he's writing about his own death. But notice what's missing here. Salvechuk points out that he, in the, the, everything up until this point, it says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Omer, God was saying, Moshe, Omer, Moshe was repeating it and writing it. Here, Hashem was speaking, saying it, and Moshe was only writing it. He wasn't repeating it. He couldn't repeat it because it wasn't yet true. He couldn't say, He could write it down as a nevoah or as a statement that in a few minutes will be true, but right now it's not true. He couldn't, therefore, could not therefore say it. But what we see in this Breitah is that, first of all, there is no doctrinal ground that anybody operates with of saying every word in the Torah had to be written by Moshe, that it had to be written prophetically, no question, but not who the vehicle of that prophecy is. And the question just is one of interpretation of psukim. Clearly, there is a motivation to have Moshe be the writer of all of it. And therefore, Rishimon says, I'm going to find a way to make that work by interpreting the, the last eight psukim and reading what happened a little differently. Uh, and Rabbi Yehuda says, I don't have the need for that because uh, I'm comfortable with Yoshua being the one who wrote it. Okay. So now we understand that there's an opening in Chazal, an opening in rabbinic literature for someone other than Moshe prophetically to be the one to write down parts of the Torah. And therefore, the Ibn Ezra simply takes us and rolls it back four more psukim, so to the beginning of chapter 34 in Dvarim. He then selectively looks through the beginning of Dvarim, a passage in Bamidbar, and a couple of passages in Breshit, and say they are also later additions. And therefore, we, uh, we, we see him saying that about Bahar Hashem Now let's take a look back and see what it may mean in that context. And now we're going to read it as the Ibn Ezra seems to intend, that what Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down was, Avram called that place Hashem Yireh. Okay, that's the end of it. And that place has a name. And there is a later addition that happens at some point, whether it's as soon as they enter the land, whether it's after Shalim is selected, whether it's after there is a uh, the beginnings of pilgrim, pilgrims coming in Shiloh, whatever it may be, Hasher Amer Hayom, as we say today, The reason I mention Shiloh as a possibility is that although following the Radak, it's this place where they're going to be coming to be seen, and therefore it's only one place, and presumably Yerushalayim. It doesn't have to be. It could be, is people say you come to the mountain of God to be seen. Shiloh is also a mountain. And so you could say, when the minute that there was the beginning of the practice of pilgrims, meaning put into practice, the mitzvah is in the Torah, but put into practice of making an aliyah regal, of making a pilgrimage to the place of the Mishkan, people could say, you're coming to be seen by God. And so therefore we could associate that with the Akedah without it necessarily being the same location. 
saying, Avram says, when I came to this holy place, I would, God was appeared and God showed me the place. Just like people say, you come to the mountain of God to be seen. And then when ultimately Yerushalayim was selected, that becomes a perfect fit, although it was already there. And, uh, and then the, uh, the comment in Divrayamim that associates Har Moriah with the place of the Mikdash and all of the Midrashim that follow that, that solidify that as the location now we're perfectly with this Pasuk, which may have been added without the location-specific intent. In any case, what we've looked at over the course of the last half hour is we've gone through the story of the Akedah and highlighted several of the things we've touched in past weeks and looked specifically at the problem of Bahar Hashem Yira'en, Asher Yamer Hayom. We saw how Rashi and the Radak took more or less a consistent position that the Rashbam said has nothing to do with the future of this place, but rather that people will just tell the story that Hashem appeared to Avram here. And then we spent some time with the position of the Ben Ezra, that great uh, late 11th century exegete uh, from Spain, uh, who was uh, one of the classic Pashtanim, who, uh, who also was a great champion of Dikduk and of understanding the text on its own terms. And that's what he does here, but understanding that his audience may be somewhat reticent to embrace what he's saying fully in almost all of the places he says it cryptically. But nonetheless, this is the position of the Ibn Ezra and one that's worthy of study. In any case, we will continue Mirz Hashem next week uh, as we start to wind down our study of the Akedah and move towards uh, a coda on Avraham's life. But we have a number of weeks until then. In the meantime, everybody should have a Shabbat Shalom.